Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today celebrating our freedom in Christ with a message entitled, When Fellowship Promotes Sin. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. A school groundskeeper was working hard to get the sports field ready for the big football game that was going to be played the next day. You know, the day before, the field had been used for field hockey, so we had to erase a series of lines that had been used for field hockey and then to paint new lines to be used for football. But early on, he had made a small mistake and had crossed from one line to another. And since his eyes were fixed on the ground ahead of him, he didn't realize that he was now on the wrong path and the line marker was marking the field completely wrong. Only when he finished and stood up did he realize what he had done. He had rubbed out lines that he should have been drawing clearly, and he'd drawn lines that he should have rubbed out. You know, as we've been reading 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 11, we've seen that's exactly what the Corinthians had been doing. They'd been rubbing out the lines of demarcation between a worshiper of Christ and a worshiper of idols, and also lines that showed the relationship between husbands and wives. And as we're going to see, they had been marking clearly the lines between the rich and the poor. Should have been doing exactly the opposite. And so when we come to the last section of 1 Corinthians 11, it's a very famous passage. It's often read in churches throughout the world when, when they celebrate the Lord's table. We're left with very challenging words indeed. Did you know that it really is possible to celebrate things as God has called us to celebrate and yet to do it in an offensive manner? Listen to an Old Testament example. I'm reading Amos chapter 5, verse 21, and in this passage, God is speaking to his people. God says, I hate, I despise your feasts and take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I hope you hear in those words what must have utterly shocked ancient Israel. God had commanded the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the peace offerings, and now the same God who commanded those things said that he despised them. That's because you can't celebrate God's chosen feasts when you despise the commands of God. Something very similar to that was happening when the Corinthian Christians celebrated the Lord's Supper, or what many of us call communion today. And so today, I simply want to set the stage for the problem. I'm reading 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. Paul writes, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. In other words, when you celebrate the Lord's table, you're actually making things worse in the church rather than better. Now, we might ask how that's possible and how can things get worse when they already were very bad in that church. I mean, they were constantly bickering and they were fighting. They comparing one leader's weaknesses against another's. Sexual immorality was openly celebrated in the church. The list of the sins of that church is actually quite a long one. I mean, how can things get worse? And I would have thought that the Lord's table would have been that one place of respite where they might come together and remember Christ's sacrifice for them. But apparently, Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells them 
that communion is not healing anything. It's only inflaming all of your problems. Now, the practice of communion varies a great deal among Christian churches, and this variation is permitted by the Scripture. For one, churches will vary in terms of how frequently they celebrate the Lord's table. I mean, some do it every time they meet, some once a month, and others will do it only several times a year. And Jesus seems to have allowed this kind of a variation, and Paul seems to affirm that in verse 26 of this chapter where he says, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, it's left to each church to decide how often that actually is. You know, second, churches will also vary in terms of how they celebrate it. I mean, some churches have the congregation remain seated while they pass the elements among them and then wait until everyone is served and then they eat together. I mean, for them, the aspect of communion, sharing together in the same bread and cup is foremost. See, other churches invite the congregation to come forward and receive the bread and the cup. I mean, they emphasize the matter of an invitation to come to the Lord's table. And as we will see as we study this passage, the original Lord's table was a part of the Passover celebration, and in some early churches, it was a part of a wider love feast. You know, as varied as the celebration is, and as varied as is the frequency of the thing, nonetheless, the meal was commanded by Jesus as a way of celebrating Christ's death on our behalf until he comes again. And there's something about the repetition of the thing over and over again, saying the same words, performing the same action that builds an ever-present consciousness of what Christ has done. See, indeed, the Lord's table is simply a marker. It's an identifier of the Christian church, a mark that's so deeply embedded in our consciousness that on more than one occasion, the dying have requested one more experience at the Lord's table before they go home and are invited to the wedding table of our Lord. And given how deeply this has been a part of the Christian church for 2,000 years, binding the Christian church together, we're left to ponder Paul's words. And how can this celebration instituted by our Lord ever be for the worse and not for the better? And that brings it home to us. Is it possible for a Christian church today to become even more alienated from the Lord in the celebration of the Lord's table? See, before we finish our study of this passage in the next several days, we're going to see that God was so displeased with some of the believers in Corinth over this very thing that he put some of them to death. Now, as shocking as that may sound, every Christian who longs to be at the Lord's table needs the time required to study this passage at length. See, from the very beginning of the Christian church, the celebration of the Lord's table was central to Christian worship. In fact, Luke describes a fourfold practice in the church in Jerusalem. He says in Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Now, these four items describe the life of the early church. The apostles' teaching speaks of preaching and instruction in Scripture. The fellowship refers to the common life of godliness which believers encouraged in each other. The breaking of the bread is no small allusion to the Lord's table, and the prayers constituted the time of prayer that was given to the corporate experience of worship. See, from the description Luke gives of the life of the church in Jerusalem, the believers met in a large public gathering in a place called Solomon's Colonnade. Now, that was a, a large porch. It's located on the east side of the outer court of the temple. It's a place where Jesus himself had spoken often. 
It consisted of a series of columns, and it was covered by a roof. And the church was allowed to gather there, and it was large enough so that thousands could gather. But according to Luke in Acts 2.46, the church met in two separate locations. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. And later in Acts 5.42, we read, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. You know, from the description that Luke gives us, they shared communion in their homes where the smaller groups met. Communion, we get that word from the Greek word koinonia, initially was seen as an intimate act. It was a sacred communion with Jesus and a communion with God's people. Now, just to be clear, the Bible does not mandate any form of communion, that is, in the home or in a larger meeting. We must not make rules from the practice of the early church. I mean, there's all the world of difference between a description of an event and a command that we're supposed to follow. See, the command is, this do in remembrance of me. And the descriptions in Acts tell us how in their context, they kept the command. So complete freedom of where, complete freedom of the context of the supper, complete freedom of how often. So let's not build rules around how the Jerusalem church celebrated the Lord's table. Rather, let's repeat the formula of teaching and fellowship breaking of bread and prayer, let's make that the focus of our church. And so as the church of Jesus Christ was spreading throughout the world, they, they obviously could not meet in the temple in Jerusalem. Where then did Christians meet? Well, many places. Because it would not have been possible to build buildings as we have in our day, and because Christians would no longer have been welcomed in Jewish synagogues, and because in some places they would have been persecuted, where would they meet? And the answer to that is a part of why God was so displeased with how they celebrated the Lord's table. Somehow their arrangement in the celebration of Christ's sacred feast was done in such a way that it caused God to say, I'm not pleased with this at all. Let's learn how we might apply that to ourselves. So grateful for those who listen, view, read, and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Your encouragement confirms that people are being impacted through the trustworthy teaching of the Bible. Just a couple recent notes we received. I'm so thankful for teaching which emphasizes both the free offer of the gospel and the urgent need for godly living in response to the gospel. And another, I find your teaching is helping me grow in my faith. And for me, you are an essential service please keep on teaching the Bible. Thank you for joining us in ministry. This is why you matter. Your partnership ensures that Canadians from all generations coast to coast can grow in faith, understand the gospel, and access trustworthy Bible teaching. And don't forget this month we celebrate our monthly partners and launch our new monthly partner, 1119 Fellowship, which we invite you to join today. For more information, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or call us at 1-800-663-2425. I've met all sorts of people who have told me that the ideal for Christian churches is the house church. And I think that's a simplification that leads to error. 
The first church met in Solomon's colonnade for what I assume was a very large gathering of worship and then for private instruction and the Lord's table was often done in homes. It was a mega church that had home groups. And as the church spread, homes were the natural place where the church would meet. And indeed, the Bible gives us numerous examples of just that. I mean, listen to what Paul says in the end of Romans. I'm reading Romans chapter 16, both verse 3 and verse 5. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers for Christ Jesus. Greet also the church in their house. Now, from the best of our understanding, these kinds of house churches would have been similar to, let's say, an apartment, would have been located over top of a store, which was at street level. Now, you can only imagine that very few people are able to squeeze into an apartment of this size, and size would have dictated the size of the house church. I mean, if it held 20, that would probably be a maximum size. So you have numerous house churches in every ancient city. But we find that in the city of Colossae, for example, a very wealthy, influential Christian businessman who had multiple slaves and who also had international business interests, a man named Philemon. And Paul actually writes him a letter. That's the book of Philemon, and this is how it starts. We read, To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Now, you can only imagine that the house of Philemon was considerably larger than the house of Aquila. I mean, Philemon would have entertained hundreds in his house. That seems also true in Corinth, where mention is made of Stephanus and a man named Gaius. It now seems clear that the wealthy who had larger homes or even villas would become the natural place for the various house churches or home groups to come together for a larger meeting of Christians in a given city. And so it seems to me that the example of Jerusalem is repeated, a larger gathering place where possible, and numerous house churches or home groups as we might call them today. Let me also add here that there is no indication that the house necessarily indicated who the leader was. If that had been the case, you would find that the wealthy had the largest churches, but that's clearly not the case in the ancient church. It would have been a ministry of those who had acceptable homes for worship that they opened their homes, and so they were simply called upon to allow the church to meet in their house. See, we also know that at some time, and we don't know exactly when, but the practice of the Christian love feast began. Now, in these feasts, the practice of sharing the Lord's table was a part of a larger meal served in a large home, and this practice became formalized and became known as the love feast. And you would have celebrated this, and it would have been a full meal with people bringing their own food, kind of like a potluck that we might have today. Now, we assume that the four elements from Acts 2 would have been there, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. Now, it seems possible that 1 Corinthians 14, 26 would have been celebrated during the time of fellowship. That's where Paul writes, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. And the reason I mention this is because some modern believers are confused about the worship of the ancient church. Some assume that 1 Corinthians 14.26 was the sum total of their worship and that we today have replaced this kind of free-flowing worship for a formal preaching time. And so I'll hear people say once in a while, you know, we we go to a house church and, and we have no formal preaching. Everyone just shares what's in their heart. But that's clearly not the case in the ancient church. 
Paul is clear in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, that God has placed in the church first the apostles, second the prophets, and then third, the teachers. It would take more time than I can give to the matter here, but it seems clear that the apostolic preaching in the Jerusalem church was dealt with in terms of local teachers teaching and preaching what the apostles had laid down for the church. It was the fellowship portion of the church that would later allow for the church members to share words of prophecy and other words of encouragement at different times. And the breaking of the bread was then taken up in the eating of the Lord's table, but this, what we call communion, would in Corinth have been a part of a wider celebration of eating a love feast together with the bread and the cup as the highlight of that very night. But from the outset, these love feasts ran into trouble. You know, for instance, Jude, speaking about heretics who found their way into the Christian church, explains what happened, and I'm reading verse 12. He says, these are blemishes on your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves. And interestingly enough, Peter has noticed the same thing. I'm reading 2 Peter 2, verse 13. He says, they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. In other words, the love feast became an occasion for every single heretic to teach whatever they wanted to, including false visions. By the way, we know that the practice of love feasts, something it seems that was never the universal practice of the church, actually ended by the fifth or the sixth century, probably because of all of the abuse and also because many outsiders thought that the love feasts were actually drunken orgies. Now, now there is no doubt that in Corinth, what is being described is the Lord's table being celebrated in a rich Christian's home, being celebrated as a part of a love feast, but I also need to share one more element. See, we know that the architecture of wealthy homes and villas in that era was really quite fascinating because it highlighted the social differences between people. See, whenever wealthy people had a party, they would invite their guests into a large dining room with people reclining on couches, but then there would have been an atrium outside of the dining area where those who counted less would have been served either the scraps from the table of the wealthy or the cheaper cuts of food, or in some cases, precious little. In fact, Pliny the Younger, who was a Roman historian from that time period, even described that the kind of food and wine that you were served was a direct reflection of your social standing. Now, Pliny says that if you were poor, you really knew it and it was offensive. Well, that's the context. People in Corinth met in smaller homes for fellowship, just like in Jerusalem, and then they came together in a larger home of a wealthy person. And since the wealthy in any church would have leisure time and could take Saturday or Sunday off, they would come early in the day, fellowship in the inner dining area, and begin to eat and drink in an extended all-day love feast. And the poor would come later, and they would have been slaves and tradesmen, and they'd not have had the day off. They'd have worked hard, came to church in the evening, been hungry because food was not as abundant as today, been given nothing to eat at the love feast, and been forced to stand in the atrium while the wealthy were in the dining room getting drunk. This was called a love feast and a celebration of the Lord's table. And when the teaching time happened, some people would get up and share, and we have to assume that it was in just such a setting that Paul's letter would have been read. And everyone there, the rich and the poor, would have heard from Paul's letter. 
and when a part of the teaching time, and this is what they would have heard. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. See, can you imagine how the room would have become very quiet? It would have been embarrassing. It would have been uncomfortable and uneasy. In other words, your meetings are not growing the church. Your meetings are destroying the church. You take for granted from your culture and your practices that this kind of an arrangement is how things are. But I'm telling you, Christ is introducing a new culture, a new way of living, a new meaning of love and feasting and communion with each other. So in great boldness, Paul knows that his words are going to be read at the love feast. And he also knows that some are going to be surprised because it has never occurred to them that Christian fellowship actually erased the lines between the rich and the poor, and Jesus became poor for our sakes. See, whenever we celebrate a Christian feast and forget the Lord who showed us how we must live, everything from communion to baptism to public worship, we can become offensive to God, and we can succeed only in turning off the watching world. And with all the talk of freedom in Corinth, Paul is calling them and us to the Christian fellowship that promotes the values of the kingdom. And so for the next several days, we're going to be talking about how to do communion, that is, how to do the Lord's table in a way that makes us better and not worse. So, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would teach us through the celebration of your word how to celebrate your table well. In Jesus' name, amen. John, you brought up some significant issues, I think, in your message, one being that of uh, the wealthy and the poor and, and how we as a church uh, strive to sort of break down those barriers between wealthy and poor that we can see everywhere else, but we shouldn't actually see within the church. Yeah, there are so many natural barriers that are a part of our culture. I mean, they might be racial barriers. I mean, they could be educational barriers. And then, of course, you know, as I've already mentioned, the, the wealthy and the poor. And so uh, we might look back at the first century world and say to ourselves, well, you know, I'm so glad we're not like that because we have church buildings in which everyone is invited to sit wherever they want to sit. And yet, when we look at the friendship networks and the fellowship networks or sometimes even home care groups in local churches and we divide them on age groups or wealth groups or education groups, whenever we do that, we've stopped fellowshipping and we stop being the church that Christ wants us to be. And so I think there's something really important for us to hear in all of this and we need to look to apply that to our own lives and our churches. I think that's a great word for the church today. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. To enhance and sustain the Bible teaching ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, and to support your spiritual growth and that of your family members and friends, we've created the 1119 Fellowship Monthly Giving Program. The 1119 Fellowship was inspired by Deuteronomy 11, where we're compelled to love the Lord your God, to serve Him with all your heart and soul, to fix these words in your hearts and minds, tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, teaching them to your children, talking about them at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. This is the heart of Back to the Bible Canada, 
and your becoming a member of the 1119 Fellowship supports Bible teaching you can trust, continuing to be available to you, your family, community, and country. Consider becoming a part of the Back to the Bible Canada 1119 Fellowship today. For more information or to join, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or call 1-800-663-2425.